Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is an important interview for Global Wall Street, and frankly, for those of you not attached to Wall Street, it is of note. Jan Hatzi has cut his teeth with Bill Dudley uh, years ago at Goldman Sachs by focusing on the American consumer. He's done that to great acclaim as their chief economist and head of global uh, economics with great, great forecasting skill. Always very cautious about the dream of higher interest rates, a dream of a greater gross domestic product. Dr. Hasius joins us uh, this morning. Jan, thank you for joining Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. You guys shook the world uh, with a markdown yesterday on GDP. If we get stimulus from President Biden or a second term President Trump in January or February, how will you adjust? It's good to be uh, to be with you, and you're obviously being way too kind there. But in terms of the outlook, we did take down the fourth quarter in because of the reduced likelihood and, and very low likelihood now of a fiscal deal. We were at six percent quarter on quarter annualized. We're now at three percent quarter on quarter annualized. In fact, a few weeks ago, we had considered a larger downward revision than this in the event of no no deal uh, between Democrats and Republicans. But we ended up with a somewhat more moderate downward revision in light of the fact that the end of the $600 per week payment to unemployed workers at the end of July doesn't seem to have had as large an impact on spending as we had, we had thought. So it seems like the consumer is still holding up reasonably well, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, a downward revision was necessary. Now, if we get into 2021 and we have another fiscal easing under a President Biden with a Senate majority or under under President Trump, then we would we would upgrade our numbers probably because we're not really building in a significant amount of stimulus from here. We think there are other reasons why the economy may do pretty well in 2021. Right. They may be related to, you know, COVID developments and and potentially a vaccine, but we're not building right. st further stimulus at the moment. Yeah, and your initial acclaim came off mortgage equity withdrawal and looking at the behavior of consumers in the housing boom of 04, 05, and indeed into 06 as well. What is the behavior of consumers that you and Goldman Sachs see right now? I think the main constraint on consumers is really the the development of the of the pandemic. I mean, that's the reason why the economy turned down so sharply in March and April. And to the extent that we can unwind um, these these losses, I think it's going to reflect improvements in our ability to cope with the with the disease, to reduce infection risk, and ultimately to come up with a vaccine. That's at the at the top of the list for me. But of course, income plays an important role as well. And government government programs to shore up incomes during the, the worst part of the pandemic, I think, were extremely helpful. For me, the most amazing statistic of this entire period has been the fact that the second quarter saw the biggest decline ever in real GDP, going back at least to 1947, but also the biggest increase ever in real household disposable income. That's that that was really key, I think, in turning around 
the downturn of March and April in subsequent months. But of course, this story isn't over yet. And right now we've seen, seen a setback, it seems like. And what happens to fiscal policy as we go into 2021 is going to be important. Well, Jan, that's the issue. And Bob Prince over at Bridgewater has talked to us a couple of times about the duration mismatch. This pandemic will go on for a whole lot longer than the three-month band-aid that the fiscal authorities keep applying. And I just wonder, from your perspective, we managed to offset that income crisis, that income shock of six months ago. Do you think the nature of the slowdown changes if the appetite to apply another fiscal band-aid isn't there? I do. I think there is a very strong case for keeping policies, both on the monetary side and on the fiscal side, very accommodative. I'm generally on the more optimistic side of the debate as far as the, the economic outlook is concerned these days. And I do think that we're making significant headway. But at the same time, we're clearly still very far away from full employment. The pandemic is definitely not behind us and the economy still needs a lot of support. So on the monetary side, I would say I'm, I'm pretty comforted by global central banks' willingness to continue to, to provide support. I think there is, there is a very strong consensus there that the economy is still needed. But on the, on the fiscal side, of course, it's a more political decision, and especially yeah. in a hyper-politicized environment as, 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 as what we have currently, given the impending election, it's much easier to see a setback. And clearly, we have just seen a setback. And, and I think it would be very helpful if we could get another round of support. What's interesting about your call, though, Jan, as you cut growth for the end of this year, you boost growth for Q2, Q4 at the back end of 2021. There's some people out there, some economists who believe that if we don't grow quickly enough now, the potential growth in the future has to come down as well. What is it that you see that makes you think that even if growth has to come in in the near term, it can pick up in the longer term or at least the medium term? Well, I think that if you're restoring less activity in some of the sectors that have been hardest hit, the consumer services sector, sectors like transportation and restaurants and, and areas like that, that does give you somewhat more upside potential further down the road. Eventually, I think these sectors are going to normalize, especially in an environment where the pandemic is just less of a threat, perhaps because a vaccine is available and will have been broadly distributed by the middle of next uh, next year. So I think it's it's sort of natural to offset at least a part of any near term changes in your in your growth forecast with changes in the opposite direction, you know, a few quarters down down the road. And I think in this case that uh, strikes us as the most likely outcome, although, of, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens further down the road. And uh, I think also that the idea that if you have a larger hit in the in the near term, that that can weigh on your ability to restore activity much further down the road because of scarring effects. I, there's something to that as well, but I think that's that operates on a somewhat longer horizon probably. Jan, let's build on this, because when you talk about the potential for faster growth in 2021, even as we see slower growth now, that also flies in the face of the market's expectation for inflation. One market uh, aspect of this week's action has been a steady drip, drip lower in five to 10 year inflation expectations. Do you think that the market is wrong and that the Fed is right in thinking that they can get 2% inflation in the near term? 
Well, the Fed doesn't have 2% inflation for at least the next couple of years, so it, it still takes a while. And I, I, I would agree with that. I think we'll be below 2% for core PCE inflation for the next several years. However, right now we're at 1.2% for core PCE inflation, and I think a significant part of the gap between that 1.2 and 2 is probably related to more temporary factors, basically distortions or, or disruptions rather in the most COVID-affected sectors. I think that is going to unwind over the next year. I think that is going to push inflation higher, but you know maybe to the one and a half to one and three quarter percent range. So you're still below where you would want to be and what would be needed for the Fed to even think about yeah. hiking rates. But, uh, but I don't think you're going to be quite as low as where we are now. As far as markets are concerned, inflation markets in particular, yes, I mean, 10-year CPI inflation expectations or, or break-even inflation rates of 1.6%, that does strike me as, uh, as low. And it's moved lower, as you say. And so I would say I'm disagreeing a little bit more strongly with, the, with market pricing on, on, on these break-even rates than I, than I did, say, a... Um, a couple of weeks ago when it was a bit higher. I think, is, I think there's some upside there. Th this is crucial, and this is one of the most heated debates on Wall Street. BlackRock coming out and sort of speaking to the debate that John and Tom were having earlier about the rejiggering of supply chains in the wake of the deglobalization and how that alone could really increase inflation perhaps more than markets are expecting. Why is that not a thesis that you follow based on your expectation to one, for one and a half to, to, to less than 2% in the near term for inflation? I think it's a factor. I mean, I think it's it's going to be potentially an, an, a factor for the good sector of the economy. But I also would say that the service sector is significantly more important, accounts for, you know, 70 percent of the basket. The good sector only accounts for about 30 percent of the basket and also the potential impact of changes in supply chains. I think it's going to be spread over a period of time. I don't think it's something that is going to have, you know, a huge impact in in the very short term. But what what does have much bigger effects in the very short term, I think, is these distortions or disruptions that we're seeing in COVID-affected sectors, which are probably going to unwind more more quickly. So, you know, I think both of these factors are probably reasons yeah. to expect somewhat higher inflation. But uh, but I think the disruptions are more important. Yeah, and when did you last wear a tie? <laughs> March. Um, I, have not March. Been, I have not worn a tie since March. But I am now wearing a, just a, a suit jacket. So that's, um, I think, a you know, gradual adjustment to the, to the pandemic. Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs. Tom, I don't know what I think of this. The new trend on, on Wall Street of no ties. I like to trend I think the I'd beard. feel a little bit naked. I mean, I got a lot of people lobbying, you know. I, I'm into the stubble. You know. Should we see what the no-tie thing looks like? Ooh, look at go. this. Let's and by the go. way, Let's it's not it. a skinny tie, I learned. It's a slim tie. This is a slim tie. Yeah. It's a slim tie. It's just have, you know. It doesn't do look right, John. No. Put it back on. Oh, really? Tom, we're doing that again? We're doing this on radio? I think this, this yeah. might work. <laughs> Taking ties off on radio. On radio, we're I like Tom without the bow tie. I mean, I've, Look at those I've been with Tom on the weekend, and Tom still wears a bow tie. I don't While he jogs wear up the a tie. Hill. It well, works. To get to those markets. Yeah, let's do the markets. To get to those markets. Yes.
Let's get a conversation started with Amy Wu Silverman, RBC Capital Markets Equity Derivative Strategist, joins us right now. Amy, fantastic to catch up with you. This market, not too concerned about October or November, very preoccupied with December. Why, Amy? Hey, guys, good morning. Uh, Yeah, I mean, December seems to be uh, the focus. You know, part of it is there is this December 14th uh, deadline when the the state electors are supposed to submit their ballots. And and obviously the conversation has gone on for quite a while that we're going to have a contested election, election where logistics and mechanics matter a lot. Um, You know, one nuance I would point to is this is very true for S&P and VIX, which has been pricing a higher for longer elevation volatility. This is not true in NASDAQ, and it's not true in Russell. The the options term structure that we look at is actually lower in December than in November. It's flipped in S&P and VIX. And so I, I actually think that's pretty interesting because the market has been so, so much driven by this, you know, tech versus value trade that that is not being reflected in those indices. Amy, what portion of this pullback, this correction, is simply due to a bet on weaker economic growth. Does that play in big or is it just another small factor? You know, you know, I think that definitely, you know, we sort of saw the market uh, react to some of the data that came out as well as Powell's comments. Uh, If I could add a third layer to that, there have obviously been substantial option dynamics uh, at play ever since August and even earlier, uh, you know, referring to the soft bank trades as well as the retail option buying. So, you know, the third factor that I see in play is also that there is this options dynamic we refer to as gamma where, you know, it slices both ways. We saw that exacerbate the move up and we are seeing it exacerbate the move down uh, in, you know, look in mainly tech names, but but as goes tech, as goes the market because of the heavy weighting that it has had in the market um, in recent times. You talk about tech and you talk about how 2020 volatility has largely been focused on what you call the fang man stocks. I call them the fan mag stocks. Pick your poison. How much risk is there to big tech if we do get a vaccine? In other words, do they potentially suffer losses or just underperform versus the rest of the index? Yeah, it's kind of a million dollar question. Um, So far, it has been very resilient. Uh, One key point that we look at to kind of look as a litmus test to to that answer is how in options uh, call option prices way over put option prices. So those have all been inverted through the entire summer, meaning people are so exuberant on tech. We've actually now started to see that to change uh, in particular in, in the fang mag names or what have you. And so that makes me nervous. That makes me think that if there is a reversion, well, it'll come hard. Let's go back to John Maggie 101, uh, Amy. Uh, well, we're just very simply here, are we seeing a breakdown of a bull market? Can you call it intermediate bear or are you talking outright bear? So, you know, for, from our perspective, when we look at how the options went from complete exuberance to now, I would say, back to average levels, the the investors who are expressing their views are starting to show more bearish sentiment. And then obviously that's sort of on a very short term basis. So everything we look at in terms of the option prices are always sort of one month to three months. But if you look at those, we went from peak exuberance to historical relationships we never saw in terms of how bullish they were to now back to even slightly bearish. 
And so as we head into an election and we get to focus more on index trades as opposed to single stock trades, I can see that, you know, turning us into an environment where people are much more focused on hedging and focus on the downside risk. Amy, great to catch up as always, especially this morning. Amy Wu Silverman there of RBC. Jim Paulson has a huge advantage. He's not in the three zip codes of Wall Street of the city in uh, London. Jim uh, Paulson in Minnesota with the Luthold Group. Jim, how have you changed your opinion in the last two weeks in this this chaos we're in? Well, I I guess, you know, Tom, I, I kind of look at it as, you know, with the ferociousness of the rally off the March lows, you, you knew that we we're going to get correction at some point. And... Um, and generally, corrections do their job. They they scare you a lot, and um, I, I agree. This this could have further to go. I, I really don't know, um, but um, I mean, it it wouldn't surprise me if we you know we do fall fifteen percent from the highs at some point. It doesn't have to, but it certainly could. But I I guess for me, I think there's quite a bit of fundamental economic momentum here. Uh, coming into this, and I think it's likely to continue to carry into the fourth quarter and beyond. Um, and I think that's going to that's going to eventually turn this correction a, a little bit. I mean, we're growing north of thirty percent in the current quarter in real GDP, maybe the fastest quarterly growth rate ever. And um, expectations right now among <laughs> private sector economists for the fourth quarter, for right off Bloomberg, are five percent. Right. Uh, which is really strong. I think it might come in stronger than that. If you just look at look at housing yesterday, look at the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index that came out yesterday. Um, that is, it's interesting. The Bloomberg Consumer Comfort is in the upper quartile of its history right, right now. But the John, John Farrell, this is I mean, Jim is so good to bring this up as well. You know what, John? I don't see up thirty percent in the streets of New York. Do you see it on the streets of London? Not really, but there is a mechanical point to be made here, Tom. You go from shutdown to reopening, the lights off, you switch it back on again. There's a mechanical improvement. It's just there. It's just basic maths. And I just wonder, Jim, what are you seeing that's mechanical, just to bounce back from being shut down to reopening? And what are you seeing that is self-sustaining? You use the word momentum. Where are you expecting the momentum to come from? I, I totally agree with you, Tom. There's a big chunk of this you know, bounce that we've had was just turning the switch off and then back on. There's no doubt of that. But I do think that turning the switch back on creates its own momentum. I mean, we had a lot more fear when we had the switch off among consumers, among businesses, um, and that fear caused them to pull in spending even more, cut costs even harder. That fear is less now, in part because we allowed some things to come back on. So there's greater confidence you know, we still have an 18% savings rate among the household sector. Let's say they, they bring that back down to, to, to 12% or something if over, over the next uh, few quarters or something like that. If they do that, that would, be, that would equate to dramatic growth in personal consumption expenditures, just that alone. And all you really need to do that is just to generate some confidence. The other thing I'd like to point out, is we've already dumped a lot of stimulus on this thing. And most of that really hasn't started to help yet because it takes about a year historically before it starts to really show benefits in, in the economy. 
But as we go into the fourth quarter and into the first quarter, that one-year lag is going to be met, and I think that will will start to improve economic conditions. Look at the impact that a lower mortgage rate has had on housing activity and auto sales in this country. Imagine what the impact of 25% money growth and 15 to 20% fiscal spending, which I don't even think showed up yet, yeah. might have starting in the fourth, first, and second quarter of the coming year. Jim, perhaps the uh, phrase of the week is a healthy correction. Pretty much uh, almost every uh, note that I've read has somewhere around a uh, healthy correction in it. Yours included, and you also say it won't be the last, and you reiterate the idea that we're in this bull market. You did say, however, say we are refreshing valuations. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, Lisa, I concur a little bit with your healthy correction. I, that's why I think maybe we have to have a little deeper correction yet, because even myself, I'm just not scared enough yet. So maybe maybe it has to go further. And maybe guys like me will quit saying healthy correction by the time it actually is getting closer to the end. I kind of concur with that. You know, I, I think there, there's a, a ref, what I mean by refreshing valuations um, is that that we're we're bringing down the, pr- the price of the market um, at the same time that we're starting to bring back up uh, earnings. I mean, earnings estimates are climbing um nearly everywhere, nearly across all sectors. Um, and right now you've got uh, 3,200 S&P roughly, and you've got 146 uh, one-year forward earnings estimate from the street right now. You know, that puts you back down, I think, around 21, 22 times or something. Uh, it was a lot higher not that long ago. So we are we are doing some damage to valuations. And as we... As we go along further, I, I suspect those earnings estimates are going to come up even more. So the market might look even cheaper by the end of this year, even if it goes higher in the meter, in the in the interim. Jim, great to hear from you, sir. Jim Paulson of Luthold Weedon. Right now. On our politics, it is good to go abroad to get a different view. Julie Norman is at the University College London, a political science professor with wonderful cred on the Levant and the Palestinian and Israeli experience. But she joins us now on the Battle Royale in Washington. Julie Norman, calculate this weekend. Is the two candidates adapt and adjust to a debate four days away? Right, Tom. So there's obviously a lot that's going to be going on this weekend. We expect that tomorrow that Trump will announce the next Supreme Court nominee, and that will, of course, just set off a really quite partisan battle in Washington moving into the week of the debate with really both parties trying to double down on a lot of the key issues that will resonate for their voters. A lot of that, of course, coming on the backdrop of Trump's recent comments this week about um, a potential non-peaceful transfer of power after the election. So all that's going to be on the table going into the debate. Wait, going after the undecideds, forget about changing somebody's vote, just going after the undecideds versus getting the turnout of your base. Wait that balance right now. Yeah, so this is going to be a challenge for both parties. Right now, Trump and continuously Trump has had a very strong following of his base, but trying to get other people beyond that into his coalition has been a challenge. 
But again, the Supreme Court nomination might open up a possibility there. There are a lot of conservatives, moderates who maybe don't like Trump personally, but are still pretty committed to conservative policies and values. So the Supreme Court nomination will help bring in some of those undecided voters for Republicans for sure. And the Democratic side, it's a bit more complicated for Biden, really trying to straddle a very you know, wide range of opinions within his own party from very uh, strong to very strong moderates and you know, some on both sides of that spectrum who may still be unsure about how enthusiastic they are about Biden. Julie, we're focused on the presidential aspect of the election. However, a lot of people in the markets are saying possibly the more consequential election is for the Senate. Where are we in terms of a blue wave or a blue sweep come November? Well, that certainly is where a lot of the focus and emphasis will start being as we get closer to November. Um, there are a number of key seats that are up for grabs. Democrats are, of course, really trying to emphasize this point, again, with a Supreme Court nomination to suggest that if they retook the Senate, they would be open to pushing for some, you know, really heretofore fairly progressive or um you know, not mainstream policies, such as increasing the number of justices on the court, um, increasing term uh, or uh, implementing um, uh, term limitations, or going over, over other policies that Democrats have been pushing for more of the progressive wing, such as ending the filibuster. So Democrats are really pushing hard for this sense of, can we take back, can they take back the Senate? And if so, will they be able to really leverage that into some different kinds of political power? And there's also a question pairing that with the fiscal debate. How much would the Democrats pass in terms of a fiscal uh, stimulus, a true stimulus, once the pandemic is over versus the Republicans? Is there really that much daylight between the two plans? I mean, or is what we're seeing right now political silly season and there's actually more convergence between Republicans and Democrats on the fiscal support side than it may seem? I think we're going to be moving towards more convergence. Of course, there's been a bit of a stalemate since the end of August with the last real meaningful negotiations. But, you know, I think after this week's um, comments that we heard from Jerome Powell and other Federal Reserve officials to Congress really underscoring the need for fiscal stimulus, we do see both parties coming back to the table now, Pelosi being open to, you know, maybe uh, massaging some of her initial numbers just to get some kind of deal moving forward. That's necessary for the economy, and both parties also realize that it's necessary for the election as well for some of their, um, their key seats that are up for grabs. Uh, Julie, John emails in from Coventry and asks, tell us about the campuses. Tell us about, you know, in the United States, we have a struggle here. I mean, the news today is Pac-10 football, Pac-12 football, whatever it is, they're going to start to play football again. And yet campuses here are an absolute mess. Is it the same thing in urban United Kingdom? Well, that's a good question. We are actually just going back to our classes next week. So our students are actually just coming back right now. I think the UK is dealing with a lot of the same questions as the US right now with how much face to face to have, um, how you know, big of groups to allow students to, to gather in. Um, it is a big question mark here too, but we do have students coming back to campus and everyone's just trying to do their best to make the best year possible for them. So that was a good question. Judy, Julie great Norman, to catch up. great. You know, it's fabulous. Judy, thank you. Julie Norman, the University College London. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 